We're going to get started because we went long last service. So I want to welcome everybody. My name is Eric Jafruti, and I'm one of the, the pastors here, and we're glad that you're here. I want to start by welcoming any special guests that uh, are with us today. Uh, thanks for spending part of your weekend with us, and we'd like to get to know you. And the easiest way to do that would be to fill out one of the Connect cards that's in the seat uh, below you or in front of you. And you can uh, turn that in at one of the offering boxes, or better yet, take it to the back uh, at the Welcome Center, and we'd love to just talk to you and, and meet you there. After the service, we want to invite you to hang out for a bit, located in the back uh, behind the hallway there. We have a lounge with some goodies and some coffee and just a time of fellowship. A couple of announcements. Our gospel class starts Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. All are welcome to come to that, and this is for those who want to know uh, more about what it means to be a, a Christian and to have a better understanding of the, the Christian faith. And for those that are interested in membership in particular, this is a, a requirement and a prerequisite for membership. It runs about eight weeks, and it's going to start this Wednesday here in the sanctuary at 6.30 and if you are interested in being baptized, you can make plans to stay for about 25 minutes uh, after service next week uh, for a short baptism class to explain what that's all about. So with that said, we have a long service this morning, so I'm just going to jump right into it. If you would please stand with me, I, I want to uh, share God's word with you. So this is Colossians chapter 3. Uh, verses 12 through 14, and it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put, uh, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace and for your goodness. And as we talk about this difficult subject, Lord, we ask for your blessing. We pray that you would uh, give us a new sense of uh, the meaning of marriage and the sacredness of marriage, Father, and, and the challenges uh, that can be faced, and that you would soften our, our hearts that may have become hard to one another, Lord, to bring healing and restoration. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, we do have Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you could take one. Uh, if you just forgot yours, you can, you can borrow that. And we have notes on the communion table, so if you want to follow along. And if you have a smartphone, you can download version, and that will give you all the notes and, and the uh, scriptures and so forth. And you can follow along that way as well. So we are continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and how that actually works. And he explained that, the ki that kingdom living requires a righteousness that was greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, a righteousness that was provided by God himself and that enables us to go beyond the letter of the law to fulfill the spirit of the law. And last week, we had looked at how our, uh, we use our words to manage and to manipulate those around us, how too often we make uh, frivolous promises and oaths to get what we want without any real commitment to follow through, and how Jesus wants us to be a people whose yes is yes and whose no is no. And he desires that our words, then, would be an authentic representation of who we are in Christ that we're God's children, that we're secure in his love and care despite anything this world can throw at us. So now this week, today, we're taking this idea of oaths or promises to the next level as it specifically relates to love, marriage, 
and divorce. And we'll see how Jesus takes the common teaching and interpretation of his day about divorce, and more importantly, about marriage, and shows how far short of God's design that it actually was. And so regarding this idea of promises, if you will, G.K. Chesterton, he pointed this out. Uh, He says that uh, when when we fall in love, our natural inclination is not just to express affection, but to make promises to each other. We start making these vow-like claims, uh, if you will, uh, that uh, you know, we know the other person wants to hear. And we say things like, I will always love you, or it's just you and me forever, and, and stuff like that. And that's because real love, biblical love, instinctively desires permanence. And so we see this throughout the scriptures, and in particular in the love poem, the Song of Solomon. And it ends with these words of declaration. In Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 through 7, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so when it comes to wedding vows, they are much less a declaration of current love, which should be a a given, right, if you're going to be getting married, than they are a mutually binding promise of future love. A wedding shouldn't be mainly a celebration about how loving you feel right now, today. Rather, it's where you stand up before God and your family and friends, as well as the institutions of our society, and you promise, you vow to be loving and faithful and true to the other person in the future, regardless of your ever-changing feelings and your circumstances. And so it's in light of this that we go to what Jesus says about divorce. And that's where we are today in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. And it says this, Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so Jesus here is addressing the issue of divorce as experienced in his day. And as he does so, ultimately, he's teaching about God's original design for marriage. Now, how is this relevant for us today? Some current statistics. Over 90%, closer to 93% of you will be married if you're not already. How many, how many of you are not married? Raise your hand. Oh, well, there's a few of you. Well, over 90% will be married if you're not already. Now, um, does anybody know what the divorce rate? Just guess. What's the divorce rate? Okay, you're in the 50s, right? Okay. Well, you know, those are flawed statistics. The, the average divorce rate hovers somewhere between 30 and 35%. It, it fluctuates a bit. But basically, one in three marriages end in divorce. Now, interestingly, believers who say that they put God at the center of their marriage are 35% less likely to divorce. Now, the impact that divorce has on families and individuals and and children is substantial. It's not just between two people. There is a lot of collateral damage. And for many of you who have walked through a divorce or are now single or remarried or, or whose parents were divorced or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and and disappointment and anger and regret and even guilt. Few things are more painful 
than divorce, and it cuts to the very depth of our personhood. Now, that being the case, this is a very difficult subject to talk about. And so I want to say up front that God has revealed himself to us in this way, as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving inequity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the inequity of the fathers on future generations. So, I want to make clear in the beginning that although divorce is not God's will for marriage, he is good enough and he is big enough to redeem all of our failures and all of our sins if we trust and we follow him. And what this also means is that there are consequences of our sin that won't just necessarily disappear. But he has promised to remain faithful through all of them. And we, as believers, are to lovingly stand by those who go through or are going through divorce and to come alongside those who are grieving and who repent of any sinful part on their own. But we must also be willing to proclaim the truth about God's will for marriage and his displeasure with divorce and do all we can biblically to keep it from happening. And so today, as in Jesus' day, there is a lot of confusion about divorce. Even Christians are confused about divorce. And the reason many of us are confused about divorce is because we are confused about marriage. And the reason we're confused about marriage is because we are confused about love. And we, like the rest of our culture, we have approached marriage as consumers. We've bought into this idea that our individual needs are more important than that of the relationship. And love is understood mainly through the lens of romance and personal fulfillment, and sexual satisfaction. It's this idea that love is basically a particular kind of feeling that is measured by how emotionally desirous a person is for the other person's affection. And this is the essence of how love is portrayed in in Hollywood movies and in television and novels about love and relationships. And it's this idea that romantic passion is the most important thing that we have to have to be satisfied and to be made complete in a relationship. And so as consumers then, when the novelty of the initial passion wears off, which it most certainly does, we find ourselves thinking that we made a mistake or that it was good while it lasted and begin to look elsewhere for something or someone to fill that void. And so when someone says to us that they're getting a divorce, we find ourselves a little bit tongue-tied, not knowing what to say, or we say things like, well, I hope you find somebody that makes you happy or you know not all marriages work out we often don't know what to say or or what to think because love and marriage and divorce are confusingly connected now this is not the biblical model of love on which marriage is built scripture does clearly depict the gloriousness of love and marriage in the song of solomon and it's practically dedicated to the delightful playfulness of love and relationship and sexual pleasure. And this should be a vital part of every marriage. However, the Bible grounds all love in God's covenant love for his people as its foundation. And in contrast with our consumer culture then, um, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the other. And this means that love is more of an action than it is an emotion. Now, Scott McKnight, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he frames this covenant love using three prepositions. He says that God covenants to be with us 
number one. And to be for us, number two. And then unto full redemption. And that is until we become the holy and the loving people of God. And so we can say then that the marital love then can be defined by God's love like this, that our love for our spouse is to be with them, which refers to our presence, and to be for them, which refers to our advocacy. We're on the same team with them. And, and to be unto God's redemptive purpose for each of us. And that refers to our commitment to their spiritual well-being and their spiritual growth. Now, as an example of this, how many of you here have children? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of you. How many of you were a child at some point? Okay, that covers most of us. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, Tim Keller, he likens this to how a parent loves and cares for a child. Here, the biblical pattern of love, he says, is basically forced on you. What does he mean by this? A baby is the neediest person that you are ever going to meet, right? A lot of you know that. They need constant care every moment of every day, 24-7. And you have to make these enormous sacrifices in your life. And yet the child for a very long time, gives very little, if anything, in return. And at some point, they may give you love and respect, but it doesn't compare to what you have given them or what you've invested in them. Now, think about, for a moment, the massive social stigma attached to any person who gives up on their child because it's too hard or because it's unrewarding. For most of us, the very idea is unthinkable. And why? Because society still considers that parent-child relationship to be a covenantal one rather than just a consumer relationship. And so likewise, marriage is meant to be the most deeply covenantal relationship possible between two human beings. And so both Jesus and the Apostle Paul point this out when they quote Genesis 2.24, which describes the first ever uh, wedding ceremony. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so this idea of holding fast to his wife or cleaving, it means to be united to someone through a covenant, through a binding promise, or, or through an oath. And in the Hebrew, it literally means to be glued or to be um, welded together. And so it's a clear picture of permanence. And so why is it the most deeply covenantal relationship? Well, first, because it's not just between the man and the woman. It's also between each person and God. And in Malachi, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, God tells the people the reason why he won't accept their offerings. And in verse 14, he says, But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And we see in Proverbs 2.17, it describes the wayward wife as one who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. So therefore, this covenantal understanding of love means that divorce destroys the reflection of God who is utterly faithful. And so to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. Now, second, Paul follows his quote of Genesis 2.24 in Ephesians 5.32, and he says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
So this, this new one flesh union is meant to display the glory of Jesus' relationship with his bride, the church, with us. And this means that it lifts marriage out of that sitcom sewer, if you will, and it elevates it into the bright, clear sky of God's glory where it was meant to be. And this also places it firmly then on the basis of grace because this is the way Christ took the church, took us to be his bride by grace alone. And that's how he sustains his relationship with his church, by grace alone. And so it's this glorious view of marriage uh, that Jesus is addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so to see a fuller picture of this, uh, we have to look at Jesus' response to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19. And so if you have your Bible or, or your uh, on you version, Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9, and it says this, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, Back in Matthew 5.31, Jesus said, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus was summarizing what was written by Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Now, here in Matthew 19, the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to take a side on the issue of divorce. And so you had the liberal school of Rabbi Hillel, and he interpreted Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24 as a permission for a man to divorce his wife if he found anything at all displeasing about her, from the way she looked to the way she cooked. And so the conservative school of Rabbi Shammai more accurately understood Moses' permission to divorce because he found some indecency about her. This word indecency was interpreted as unchastity, and it's the Hebrew equivalent of the term sexual immorality. But what does Jesus say? He also refers back to Moses, only he goes back further to God's original design laid out in Genesis. You see, Jesus affirmed marriage is first and foremost rooted in creation. It's the joining of one man and one woman together as one completely new family unit, one flesh. And this is primarily why, biblically speaking, same-sex marriage could never be considered sacred before God. And further, he affirms that it is God who does the joining together. God is the main actor in the marriage event, not those being married, not the pastor, not the priest, not any other human official. Therefore, no man, no human being has the right to separate the sacred union that God himself created. And so the Pharisees asked then, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus again affirms that divorce was not a part of God's original design, but that Moses only permitted divorce because the Israelites had hard hearts and they didn't want to bear the full burden of God's holy law. And so Jesus, he acknowledged here that you know, divorce may be permitted in cases of sexual immorality. He doesn't command divorce in those cases, but he allows for the possibility. 
Now, sexual immorality here, it's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word uh, pornography. And this obviously includes adultery, which is a breaking of the covenant vow. This means that, yes, adultery can destroy a marriage. Adultery is a sin that led to death in the Old Testament. And it's a sin that can lead to the death of a marriage. But that doesn't mean that if adultery is committed that you have to get a divorce. But it does mean that you may have biblical grounds to do so. Now, this word porneia, it can also include other forms of sexual corruption that break covenant and break oneness with your spouse. And today, this could include such things as online relationships of various sorts, addiction to uh, pornography and, and things of that nature. And one might say, well, I haven't technically committed adultery and been physically present with someone, but you have committed porneia. Now, these can be difficult circumstances, we, we know, and, and they, they're judgment calls. And that's why it takes loving leadership and counsel that, that is loving and prayerful and biblical to be involved, to help understand and to sift through all of these issues. Now, the Apostle Paul, knowing what Jesus had taught, he added another exception to permissible divorce. And we see that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 10 through 24. And that's when an unbelieving spouse deserts the believing spouse. A believing spouse is not to leave or divorce an unbelieving spouse. But he said in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. So we get a clear picture here uh, from these exceptions. What constitutes biblical grounds for divorce? Now, going back to this idea of commitment, of covenant love, defined by being with someone and for someone and someone that's working unto divine ends, marriages can be destroyed when the partner refuses to be with their spouse or they become someone who is against their spouse. And based on Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, the most common obligations for a husband was to provide food and clothing and shelter in addition to a sense of marital love and intimacy. And physical abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, they're all actions that can destroy the marital covenant. Abuse destroys what it means to have shelter because the house is no longer safe. And it can be a legitimate reason for divorce. Now, with all of that being said, we can't miss the message of what Jesus is teaching here. He wants us to know that divorce is not God's plan. But we want to ask, well, you know, what about this case or, or, or what about that case? Jesus affirms here the sacredness and the permanency of marriage as an, inviol- an inviolable union. However, because of sin and because of hardness of heart, divorce is permitted, not commanded, but permitted when the covenant is broken by sexual immorality or by desertion of an unbeliever. And so it's in light of this that Jesus says, those who divorce illegitimately are in God's eyes still married. If they marry another person, it's considered adultery according to the scriptures. And if the marriage has been unjustifiably broken before God, then any partner in remarriage will be guilty of adultery. Now this can be confusing and it can be messy, but it speaks to the absolute seriousness of the marriage covenant in God's sight. So What if as believers you have unjustifiably and biblically speaking um, divorced and remarried? 
God would not have you to break that new covenant, which he considers binding. The marriage maybe should not have been done, but now that it has been done, it's a real covenant of marriage, and it's purified by the blood of Jesus, and it's, it's set apart for God. So in other words, the couple who repents and seeks God's forgiveness and receives his cleansing should not think of their lives as ongoing adultery. You see, divorce is never willed by God. It's always the result of sin. The deceitfulness of sin can lead to the hardness of heart that Jesus speaks about here. And ultimately, there is no control over the response of a sinning or an unbelieving spouse. Hearts can become so hard that They are without prospects of of repentance and healing. But even in cases of sexual immorality or desertion, forgiveness is always required on the part of the victim. Where there is repentance, there is hope for healing. Marital reconciliation and restoration and the preservation of the marriage should always be the goal and should always be the prayer for believers. And Mark Driscoll, he he put it this way. He says, you shouldn't get divorced because you can. You should only get divorced because you have to. See, divorce should not be easy. It should be terribly difficult. But Jesus knows the depth of human sin, and he offers hope to those who find themselves married to someone with an impossibly hard heart and who has broken their covenant vows without any hope of return. In essence, Jesus is saying, you've heard that it was said you are permitted to divorce. But I say to you, I have come to conquer the hardness of your heart. I have come to die for your sins. I have come to count you as righteous. I have come to show you the drama that marriage was meant to represent in my sacrificial covenant-keeping love for my sinful bride. I have come to give you the power to stay married and to keep your promises and to show what my covenant is actually like how sacred is that covenant bond of marriage. What Jesus says here is incredibly good news. Even to those who have been divorced and are remarried, Jesus, he says, don't divorce your spouse and and remarry somebody else. If you do, you've committed adultery. Why is it adultery? Ultimately, it's adultery because it betrays the truth about Christ that marriage is meant to display. You see, Jesus never, never, never does that to his bride, to the church. He never forsakes her. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. He always loves her. He always takes her back when she wanders. He's always patient with her. And he always cares for her and provides for her and protects her. And amazingly, he always delights in her. And you who were married once or married five times or, or married never, if you repent and you trust Christ and you receive him as your Savior who bore your punishment and became your righteousness, then you are in the bride. And that's how he relates to you. And the scripture says in Acts 10.43 that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through him. Now, there, there are few things that hurt as much as the betrayal of a spouse the breaking of the marriage vows by sexual immorality. It's the severing of the marriage covenant. Treachery and betrayal are usually accompanied with lies and deceit that add to the pain and destroy so quickly the trust that took so long to build. And yet not even this is beyond Jesus' redemptive power to heal and to bring reconciliation and ultimately restoration so that the marriage can once again reflect the glory 
that God had intended. And it's our desire here at Element to have a redemptive culture where together we can be free to bring the deepest issues that affect our lives to Jesus. And we can do this because he bore all of our sin and all of our shame on his cross for this very purpose. And he understands our suffering. And that's why today my wife, Terry, and I want to share our story with you. Um, hello. Uh, we are the Jafrudis. My name is Eric, and this is my wife, Terry. And uh, I'm one of the elders at Element Christian Church. A uh, little bit of background. We have been married for 30 years now. We are actually high school sweethearts. We met our freshman year in high school and uh, dated on and off throughout high school. And um, we became believers in 1982 when we were... Seniors in high school. Seniors in high school, yeah. And um, through a series of events, uh, we became engaged and we got married pretty quickly. Uh, we were married at 20 and 19. And uh, we started our family very soon after that. We have three beautiful daughters uh, that we're very proud of. This is our story about uh, the last 30 years. As Eric said, we have been married for 30 years. And um, I would view our marriage as perfect. And um, I was asked that exact question about a year and a half ago, and that's how I described our marriage. Um, little did I know that it wasn't quite perfect. The last five years have been very good in many respects, but um, there were things that happened in the past that were buried, that were like a wall that really prevented true, true oneness, if you will. Uh, things that I had done that really, I think, robbed us both of the, the intimacy and the oneness that God intends for marriage. Uh, so a year and a half ago, I went to redemption training in Seattle. I was excited about what this could do for our church, and uh, I was going there as a participant, but I really had no idea what God was planning to do in my own life. About um, 18, 19 years ago at that time, um, I had an affair and I, I was unfaithful to my wife. I was working a, a lot of hours. I was working on a special project. I was um, far away from home. Basically, I was in a vulnerable uh, place. And it was at that time that um, I developed uh, a relationship uh, with a coworker. And this person, this person had pursued me and Initially, I resisted that temptation, but over time, gradually, I I gave in and I, and I fell to that temptation, and I committed um, I committed adultery. It, it didn't last a, a long time, 
Um, but basically, I got to the place where I, I was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I, I could no longer live a double life, and um, I had to break it off. And, and I ended it, and and that was it. And um, I loved, I loved my wife. I loved my my family. I didn't want to risk losing them, and I knew that it was over. I knew that God had forgiven me. I had repented, and I was. I was determined to put this in the past, and um, I was prepared to go to my grave with this secret rather than hurt my wife and, and hurt my family. Um, I was prepared to absorb it and, and to just deal with the consequences of it on my own. So I lied about it, and I maintained that lie for the next 18 years. Being, uh, being in Seattle and going through the teaching, one of the questions that we were asked to, to meditate on and to pray about and to talk about in our group was what suffering do we experience that we need to face honestly before God? As I thought about it more and more, I believe the Holy Spirit was revealing to me that um, I, I have I have suffered because of the consequences of my own sin. Um, I had been suffering because I had sinned uh, against my wife, and I had kept it a secret, and I had lived with that secret for for such a long time. I, I began to see that. Um, this wasn't just a betrayal that took place 18 years ago. It was an active lie today. This was, this was a, a, a wall that has been put up between my wife and I that has prevented true, true oneness and, and true intimacy. Because I love my wife, I, I, I didn't want to finish our life together with that secret I felt that that was that was truly unloving to continue to rob us of what God had intended for us to have Eric had called me um, each day when he was in Seattle and just telling me about all the you know amazing things that God was doing and when I knew that he was coming home, he had said that, you know, he had some things to share with me. But at that time, I didn't really, I thought it was going to be about other people. <laughs> he sat me down, and at that time, I knew, I knew by the look in his face that it was something to do with us. And honestly, I can't remember his words. Um, but I remember him starting to tell me that 18, 19 years before he had had an affair. And before he even got the words out, I knew what he was going to say because I, I, had, I had suspected that something had happened around that time. Um, and I just lost it. I, um, I, I was 
I, I didn't hear anything else he had to say. I texted Aaron, and I just said, my heart is broken. And so through, um, through the next few days, I was in a, I was in a, a haze. I don't, I don't even know really what I did. I know that physically I was sick. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had never, and I know some people might not believe this, in 29 years of marriage, I had never thought about divorce. Um, it just wasn't, when I said my vows, I, I just determined within myself that I would never, that would never be an option. But it hit me that this, it, it, it scared me that this could potentially mean divorce. We began to go to counseling. Um, that was very helpful. I still, though, drew within myself and um, wanted to be alone and spent many hours walking on the beach just praying. Praying, actually crying out to God. People on the beach probably thought I was crazy, but um, begging him, begging him to help me, to heal me, because I was so, I was hurting so bad. And um, I would go to work each day, and I would put on a happy face, and it was, it was a place where I could hide. And no one knew what I was experiencing on the inside. But the minute I would come home, I was, I was miserable. Um, I no longer felt close to my husband. I no longer felt um, that comfort and that peace that I had always felt with him. I felt like he was a stranger, and it was very, very difficult. And I couldn't push through it at that point. And so I began to write in my journal each day and be very honest before God with my feelings. And through that, he began to show me, little by little, that who am I? Who am I not to forgive? And so, little by little, I began to just really seek God on forgiveness and what that looks like and what that really means. Through the time that I spent with him, and he really began to show me that through his strength that I could forgive. That God gave me that strength and, and that, that forgiveness that only could come from him. It was like a washing over me. And that night we just happened to have counseling and I was able to share with Eric, I forgive you. I forgive you of it all. Um, but at that point, I, I didn't know if reconciliation was a possibility. So it was about a year later, we were going to be celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary. Um, and I was asked to go to Redemption Group um, in Seattle with the team. And at my first response was, heck no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going there. But because I am a pleaser, and to a fault at times, I agreed to go, but not happily. And I was afraid to open that, to rip that scab off again. And um, 
But slowly these women, I mean, the Holy Spirit was so present in that group setting and in this whole, the whole time we were there that I just began through these women, through God speaking through these women, I began to, my heart began to soften and I began I began to realize that I had a choice to make. That God was asking me to make a choice. Am I going to wallow in this and live this life that he has blessed me with in um, unhappiness? and Or am I going to make a choice to stand up and fight? for my marriage and fight for this man that I love so much. I think it was the second day that we were at Redemption Group Immersion that um, I had, at that point, God has had really shown me His grace for me and I, I, I had a better understanding of what I needed to do to extend grace to Eric and so the second day we were there was actually our anniversary our 30 year anniversary and I um, I went to him and I said I am going to fight I have been lacking hope in the situation and I, I God had showed me that there is hope and that's when I made the choice in God's strength to fight for our marriage I was just uh, so blessed I I was so grateful that uh, I knew God was faithful and, and I knew that God was working in Terry's life, and it was a miracle. I knew it had to be. It had to be the Holy Spirit. It had to be God that would bring hope and, and bring healing, and um, ultimately bring reconciliation. One of the things they ask you to do at um, Redemption is to write a song, and I am not a good writer. I'm not good with my words. I have a hard time. Um, speaking what's on my mind but I spent many many hours just writing words and just writing things down until I got to what I thought would um, convey my heart and my feelings at that point um, the women in my group had encouraged me to share because there's a time of celebration I felt that um, God was asking me to share it, but there was one other thing that um, that they asked us to do, and there was um, they asked us on as you took communion at the celebration um, service, there was paper there, and they asked you to write two words on that red paper. The first word is a word that you want to leave at the cross and not to take back, but um, and then the second word was a word to take home to remind you. And 
I honestly don't remember what the word is that I left at the cross. I truly left it there. Um, but the word that I brought home was grace. And grace has um, become a very, a very special word because I have a new experience of God's grace in my life. And the ability to extend grace to someone who has hurt me so deeply. And although it hasn't, um, even since we've been back, it hasn't been perfect <laughs> um, each day. I just... I um, I rely and I I just remember God's grace towards me and what that means, truly what that means, and therefore be, being able to extend grace not only to Eric but just having more compassion for others who are dealing with some really hard things. For me. It's, it's like, it's like I am finally known. To me, um, Terry's, Terry's love and the grace that she showed me, I feel like I'm finally known by her and still, still accepted. And, and still loved, and uh, I think that was probably my my greatest fear. Um, I think that's why any of us keep secrets. And, and I guess it's it's kind of like being loved by God, who who knows us and knows our wretchedness and just knows how terrible we really are and, and, and can be, and yet. He's committed to us, and, and he loves us, and he accepts us. And I feel like now that um, we're rebuilding on the foundation that was laid, even though that there were cracks in it, that now we can fill in those cracks, and, and we can build on a firm foundation based on truth, and that... Um, our marriage, I truly believe, can be can be better than ever, and that God will receive the glory. I've come to realize that um, that I don't have the power over what happens in my life, and and so realizing that God is enough, that no matter what happens, and and those fears that I had before, and all of that insecurity. Um, that, that Jesus is right there. And so it has brought me into a much deeper relationship with, with Christ. Um, things are clear as far as what he truly has done for me that I never um, fully realized before. And just knowing that every day and every moment is a gift.
to me, redemption, it's uh, God graciously taking the broken pieces of our lives and and putting them together better than the way they were the way they were before. It's him rescuing us from our own our own sin and our own fallenness. But don't get us wrong or get me wrong, because it still has been tough. I have had we've still had some really tough days. Um, I can have a tendency to to go back to that sadness and to dwell there and um, but again I, I have I mean God has touched my heart in a way where having that hope I don't dwell there for long um, and I'm able to be honest with Eric and let him know you know I'm feeling really bummed out and um and so it's still a process. Um, it's nothing that is fixed overnight. But I have hope. to share with you my psalm. My God, you are my strength. You have allowed me to sit in your presence. And just breathe. But now it is time for me to stand. To stand against the enemy who is trying so hard to destroy me. To destroy our marriage. You are my strength. And I will fight for what has been lost. You are my strength. The strength to feel love again. To understand what love is. To be able to receive love and to give love. You are our strength. And together the love we have shared for 30 years. And the love we have for you, our God. Will get us back on the path that you have for us. morning. I'm Mike Harmon, one of the pastors here at Element, and my wife Deb and I, we want to come up here and love and cover Eric and Terry and pray for them. So just join with us. Um, Eric, I just want to thank you for sharing uh, your story. Thank you for teaching us this morning about the sanctity of marriage, God's intention for marriage. Uh, it had to be incredibly difficult for you guys to expose the difficult places of your life and what God's doing. But it gives us great hope to see that God doesn't leave anything unturned in our lives, that he is so committed to us that uh, he brings it all to his glory. And so I'm thanking you for sharing that with us this morning. And Terry, thank you for sharing your, your psalm this morning and also just um, in the video, your, your story and all you've been through. Thank you for being real with us all and, and even in the midst of your um, 
pain and suffering. Lord, we're so grateful for this couple and um, just all that you have um, brought forth in their lives over this last year and a half. Lord, I I bless them um, with your continued um, uh, presence in their life, for your grace, your strength, Lord, uh, in their lives. I pray for Terry that um, even now she would feel your um, uh, your peace and that the voices that uh, would try to um, uh, distract her, Lord, from what you're doing, Lord, I pray that you would you would cause your voice to be stronger, that you would be with her um, even now um, uh, in her suffering, Lord. Thank you for all you've done, continue to do. Father, I pray for Eric. I pray for them together, Lord. Um, even as Terry brought home a fresh glimpse of grace, I pray that your grace would be all of that and more to them on a daily basis. Great sufficiency, their strength, in the midst of weakness, their hope, their um, capabilities when they would walk with a limp and in pain. Uh, I pray for their hearts, Lord, and for Eric's heart, that you would heal the pain, you would heal that which has been broken uh, by the blood of Jesus, restoring and reconciling and giving back to them that which the enemy meant to take and to destroy in them. We bless them and we, we speak grace to them, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us, like faithless Israel, have betrayed God, and we've been unfaithful to Him. And God understands treachery and betrayal and even divorce, the Scriptures tell us. And yet He's loved us with a merciful and a gracious love that can redeem us, regardless of what suffering we have caused or what we have suffered. And we no longer have to hide our shameful sin and darkness, but we can bring it out into the light, because Jesus bore our shame on his cross. And for those of us who have been sinned against, we no longer have to demand blood for what was done, because Jesus' blood was already shed for that sin. He paid the price for our sin and theirs once for all. And so as we come to communion, um, I have a couple questions for you to ponder. Number one, what hardness of heart has led you to sin against someone that you need to confess? Number two, what hardness of heart is preventing you from truly forgiving someone who has sinned against you? So as you think about those things, we're going to go to a time of communion and a time of prayer, and we're going to have people from the Redemption Group team available to pray for you. Whatever God may be speaking to you, now's the time to deal with that. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us in our sin and you don't leave us in that fallen place, Lord, but that you redeem us so that we might ultimately bring you glory and you honor. We thank you that you are so good to us, Lord, and that you're so faithful to us and that you can take our sin and, and the devastation that we can cause and you can turn it around to make it a story to reflect your glory. So I pray that you would speak to to all of us here this morning, that you would draw us near to you, and that we would be willing, Father, to just lay 
our sin and our shame at the foot of the cross and to lay our hurts and our sorrows, Lord, there. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.